Well, before I forget, happy Father's Day to the dads. And, um, you know, I think on Mother's Day I forgot to say that. So happy Mother's Day, too. Um, sorry, I've been carrying that guilt for quite some time now. It's nice to be able to get that off my chest. Well, um, if I have not met you, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we are a, a church that, that desires to connect with God and with one another. And uh, one another, connecting with one another sometimes is really difficult, isn't it? Whether that's just connecting with the people who live in your own house or connecting with your neighbors or the broader world around you. Uh, we typically spend time in one biblical book. That's kind of our practice here. We like to work our way through uh, either all or part of a book of the Bible. Every now and then we will pause and we will, we will do some topical kind of studies. Uh, we have been in a series on Proverbs the last couple of weeks. We're going to pause this week and we're going we're gonna to talk just topically about uh, what's going on in our world right now, which I, I know that, that's an enormous phrase, right? Because there's a lot that's going on in our world right now. We're going we're gonna to really just kind of zero in a, a little bit more on the particulars of the racial brokenness and conflict that's happening around us right now, but I actually think what we're going to talk about uh, has, um, has a lot to say about other things as well, about how we handle one another in the midst of a pandemic, how we handle one another in the midst of even our own personal conflicts and what goes on with us interpersonally. So uh, that's my desire this morning, is actually to help give us some categories for thinking through and praying through and acting even and engaging in the world around us. Now, what are Christians supposed to think during this time? Let me just, first of all, just really quickly tell you what, what we're not going to talk about. I am not going to talk about policy or politics or about who you should vote for. I am not going to talk about media. I am not going to talk about any of those things. That is not our goal. In fact, one of the, uh, the, the wonderful things about being a Christian is that we are not forced into one of the polarized categories that we are so often given. We are actually given a different way. We get to conform ourselves to God's word. So that's my desire for us this morning, that we will open God's word together and see what he has to say uh, for us. Let me, before we start, let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful to be here. We're thankful to be gathered around your word. We're thankful to be gathered as your people. We're thankful, Lord, to be gathered in this particular local congregation knowing that there are other local congregations gathering right now and throughout the day and throughout the weekend that we are united to by faith in Christ. Lord, I ask that that would be made clear in our hearts today. I ask, Lord, that you would soften us, that you would soften me, that, Lord, you would root out sin in my heart, that you would find the places where that I don't even see the ways that I think I'm better than other people, and you would expose them to me. Lord, we ask that you would do this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what we're going to do. Again, today is going to be a little, maybe a little teachier uh, than normal, but here's what I'd like to do is, is give us some theological categories, uh, three theological categories that are going to be kind of like hooks on a wall. These theological hooks that we can put up, that we can then hang some stuff on, that give us a bit of a framework then for how to think about uh, how to engage with the world around us. And then we're going to look at three uh, practical 
uh, ramifications or practical applications or um, practical um, things, you know, that we can hang on those hooks. So three theological hooks and then three practical recommendations for hanging on those hooks, okay? So we're just going to dive straight in. Here's our first theological hook that we want to hang things on is this, is that sin runs deep. Now, let me uh, define my terms really quickly. When I say sin, what we are talking about is uh, the the things in our heart that desire to live uh, out of reference to God, the ways that we oftentimes want to live our lives without reference to God. Or we could define it as, you know, the things that God says not to do or not doing the things he says to do. It is any kind of movement away from God and his revealed law. That's what the Bible calls sin. And what the Bible says, there is a real problem in the world, and that real problem actually doesn't start out there. It starts in here. The biggest problem that you have and the biggest problem that I have and the biggest problem that our world has is the sin that lives in our hearts. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then, of course, before we start thinking, oh, yeah, that's just for other people, Paul goes on in chapter 3 to say this, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, our biggest problem is the sin that lives in our hearts, and the only solution, the only answer is Jesus and his forgiving, atoning blood given to us on the cross. The only answer is for God to give us Jesus' righteousness and for Jesus to take our sin. That is the answer for us. So because of that, I can say really clearly, America has a problem with race. We can own that and we can say it because what we believe is that human beings have a problem with sin. And because human beings have a problem with sin, we know clearly that Americans, who are human beings, have a problem with race. I don't think this should surprise anyone, is that actually there is sin that can dwell in our hearts that we can oftentimes be unaware of. But, but here's what may actually surprise some of us, is that sin, even biblically speaking, the Bible actually has categories for talking about sin, not just personally, but culturally. That cultures, that people groups can actually have sins that reign in those cultures in those communities. And so for us to say that we have a problem with sin, we can say at the same time that there is sin in our own hearts and that there is sin that lives in our cultures, in our churches, in our people groups, in our communities. 
I think I told you before that Joy's parents, uh, my in-laws, live in a neighborhood that has been really devastated by oak wilt. Oak wilt is a disease that attacks oak trees, and, uh, and it is truly devastating. In their, in their neighborhood, I think probably there's been more than 100 lost trees. In, in their yard alone, they've lost seven live oaks, beautiful live oaks that are dead and no more. And what is so awful about oak wilt is that it actually travels underground. And this is actually why sometimes live oaks are so susceptible because their root systems are so wide. They spread out and they start intersecting with other root systems and they transmit the disease by their roots underground. And so you can actually go into a neighborhood and you can see some trees that look like they're dead and look like they're in terrible sickness and some trees that actually look like they're okay. But the truth is, the sickness is there. The sickness is in the community. There is a problem with oak wilt, even if you see some trees that look a little bit healthier than others. That can also be said about people, is that oftentimes we can have sin that starts to grab a hold of our communities and even infects us in ways that we don't see. Communities have issues with sin, and we've got to own that. Because uh, to say, you know, just that sin's not in my heart is not enough. To look around at our culture and say, yeah, there's sin out there, but that's not in my heart. That's not enough. First of all, when we see sin in our culture, it should actually prompt us to compassion. It should prompt us to prayer. It should prompt us actually to desiring to see that rid in our culture. But secondly, it's probably in our hearts and we don't see it because it travels underground in ways that are so oftentimes not seen on the surface. And you know, it seeps into the church. It seeps in to godly Christians, godly men and women who know the gospel and just have places sometimes in their hearts where the gospel just hasn't penetrated. You see this in ancient times. One of the big cultural sins in the ancient world was polygamy. And you know what? It had an influence on God's people, patriarchs, people like Joseph, David, Solomon had multiple wives. They succumbed to this cultural sin of polygamy. Still godly people, still scripture that we believe, but they had blinders because of the cultural sins around them. It's happened in the church over the course of history. Martin Luther, later in his life, wrote some really terrible things about Jews. Things like we should burn all the synagogues and tear down all of their houses. Really horrible things. Now, does that mean that he did nothing good in his life? That we should reject all of the wonderful things that Martin Luther did? Of course not. But what it does mean is that sin runs deep, even into the heart of really wonderful, godly people. Around the turn of the century, Presbyterian preachers, that's me, a Presbyterian preacher, they were preaching that blacks were not quite as human as whites. Horrific, insidious things done by godly men very oftentimes. Does that mean that they weren't Christians? No, it doesn't. It just means that sin runs deep in our hearts. We in our cultures deal with things. 
And what we need to do when we see the sin of our culture, the first thing it should do to us is it should be a mirror. Just like God's word is a mirror to our hearts, when we look out on the world and we see the sin of our culture, what it should do first and foremost is it should actually point out the places where we might actually hold those same things in our hearts. So when we look out on our culture and we mourn the cultural sin of abortion, it should also point a light into our hearts that starts to question, where is it in my heart that I actually am not fully pro-life too? That I'm not proclaiming the glory of the image of God in every person. Jesus says this in John 19, John 3, 19. This is right after the famous verses, right? Jesus says, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness more because their hearts were hard, and so they've kind of fled into the corners. Light is wonderful, but you know, light exposes. (laughs) And the light of the gospel is there to expose the dark corners of our hearts. And so when we look out on our world, we can rightfully mourn that the biblical sexual ethic has been, for the, for the, by and large, let go of, but we can also ask God to shine the light into the dark corners of our hearts to see where we have an inappropriate sexual understanding, to see where our own sexual brokenness is. And when we look out on the world and we see that there really is such a thing as racism, that there really is such a thing as injustice done from one race to another, that there really is injustice in so many different ways, we can mourn it, but we can also ask God to shine a light in our hearts so that he uncovers even some of those same things in the dark corners where we don't want to look. Friends, sin runs deep. Jesus' forgiveness runs even deeper. We can ask God to come and enlighten our hearts. We can ask him to come and shine his light in a way that exposes us because we have a Savior who covers sin. Okay, there's our first big theological hook, is that sin runs deep. Here's the second one, is that God cares about justice and mercy, and we should too. Uh, We've been in Proverbs, and that's actually where I want to start right now. Just listen again from two weeks ago, Proverbs 1, that we studied together. Listen again to how Proverbs begins. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing, because in righteousness, justice, and equity. See, Solomon says in Proverbs 1 that one of the main reasons we are to ask God to give us wisdom is it so that we can act in justice, in righteousness, in equity. So that we understand what it means to enact God's righteousness in the world. To, to, to enact his justice, which, which means not only giving people what they're due in court, but giving them what they're due as made in the image of God. So part of acting justly in this world is giving people the dignity and the honor and the glory that they already have by nature of being made in God's image. Throughout the prophets, this is so much the story of the prophets, so much of their message is calling God's people away from injustice. 
Uh, in Micah, the prophet Micah, who's speaking uh, to Israel, he is telling them and calling them out on the fact that all the while they are uh, promoting injustice in the way that they deal with one another and trying to cover it up in their worship, uh, trying to put on a great show in worship. Just listen to the way he says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Throughout the story of Scripture, God has proclaimed his love for justice and mercy. That word kindness actually that's used there uh, it, by Micah is this word uh, hesed, which means covenant love and unfailing mercy. God loves both justice and mercy. In fact, that is the story of Jesus, isn't it? The story of Jesus is the story of justice and mercy meeting. That is what we proclaim as Christians, that we stand before a just God we're standing in a courtroom, and the judge is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, and we are 100% guilty. So what is this just God going to do? What is a God going to do who is both just and merciful? He can't just give us, pardon us of our sins. That would not be just. But if he gives us what we deserve, that would not be merciful. So what does he do? He takes it on himself. He takes the punishment on himself. He sends his son to take on our flesh, to live the just and perfect and righteous life that we could not, and then to give us his righteousness and take our sin. The worst trade in all of history that's the greatest trade for you and I, that Jesus gives us his perfect record, and he takes our sin. Paul says in Romans 3, the Romans 3, that this enables God to be both just and the justifier of sinners. Justice and mercy together. God loves those things. He has acted in justice and mercy. And because we are justified in response, we get to love them too. We get to love justice and mercy as well. We get to love to see just dealings with the people around us. We love to see an equitable way that people are handled. And we love to show mercy and to see it shown to others. That's our big second theological hook. God loves justice and mercy, and so should we. Friends, justice is not a secular word, okay? It's our word. We get to own that. We should actually own those concepts. This is biblical stuff. This belongs in the church. We are the ones who have the categories to talk about it. All right, third, third kind of theological hook is that the church actually gets to tell this story. Uh, the church is God's great mission organization. Isn't that great? Is that you and I and the body of believers both now and past and future, united to Jesus, is God's great mission organization. It is his vehicle for blessing the world. The great story we get to tell is that there is a creator who has created all things good. He desires to be in communion with his people, but there is also brokenness of sin. There is a fall of man, and it means that sin has actually infiltrated every piece of our lives. 
But we also get to tell this wonderful story that God has done something about it, that he wants to win back his creation. And here's what's so incredible about this is that he is using the people that need to be healed to accomplish his healing. God tells Abraham in Genesis 12 that he is going to bless him and he's going to bless those who bless him. He's going to curse those who curse him. And then something really important is that through Abraham and his descendants, through God's people, all of the world will be blessed. Friends, Jesus has come to take on that wonderful promise and to engraft you and I into that promise as well. We, the church, are the people of God, just like Israel in the Old Testament was the people of God. And we take on that same wonderful mission, to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the world who needs it. That God is using people who hurt, <laughs> who need to be healed, to do the healing, to do his healing work in the world. That's amazing. That God is using broken people to put the pieces back together. That's amazing. And so we get to tell that story. We get to tell the story of a creator God who has made human beings in his image. And we get to proclaim that wonderful story of human beings being made in the image of God and the honor and the glory and the dignity that comes with that. We get to tell the story of sin that is in our hearts and around us. We do so humbly. We tell that story in a way that makes sense to people because they see it actually in our lives. And we get to tell the story of redemption, that Jesus has come to meet us in our need and our sin and do something about it, something that we could never do on our own. And we get to tell the story of hope, that he is making all things new. You know that we are members of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is not here. It is somewhere else. We are members of a kingdom with, with a community established on earth. Friends, we get to live as part of that kingdom now. We get to pray as Jesus has taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we get to inhabit the glorious future when Jesus makes all things new, we get to inhabit and proclaim that now. It's our story to tell. All right, those are our three theological hooks, some structure to give us to hang some things on. Let's, let's turn now to some practical recommendations. All right, here's the first practical recommendation to kind of hang on these hooks. Avoid my side-ism. In, in the difficulty of this world, <laughs> and, and friends, our, our world is really divided right now, at least our country is really divided. We, we feel like we've always been, we're only given two polar extremes. Here's my first recommendation, is avoid the polar extremes. I, I want to read you two things that I found online from, from, from two men. One is Kevin DeYoung, who's a, a pastor in our denomination, and the other is a man named Shai Lin, who is a, a Christian hip-hop artist. And they're both talking about this same concept. Listen here. This is what DeYoung says. There is a tremendous amount of my sideism going on. It happens on all sides. It happens with coronavirus, the economy, politics, and now with literal life and death. And though vir virtually everyone can agree that the death of George Floyd was a murder and it was injustice, after that everything becomes a talking point for one side or the other. Something perverse starts to happen in our hearts during these times. You root for the other team to do something evil. 
It's easy to find in your heart that you want the officer to have turned out to be the worst possible white supremacist. You can find that in your heart, that you want that to be true. Or you find in your heart that you hope George Floyd was on drugs or that he had a police record. You find that in your heart. The human heart wants to find those things because it can feel like our side doesn't have egg on its face. We feel like we're wearing these jerseys, whatever they even represent anymore. We're just trying to find a way that our side, whatever that is, our side is the one being victimized. Our side are the ones being put out. Your side is the one that's wrong. And then here's what Shailen has to say, and he's speaking even more particularly to Christians and how we deal with one another. I understand the desire to label and categorize people in their positions. It helps us to file them away in our mental folder. Because once I stick a label on you, I can easily say, he or she is an ally, or I can say, canceled, and be done with them. I get it. First thing, though, there is nothing about cancel- there's nothing Christian about canceling anybody. Christians are commanded to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. That's Colossians 3. Jesus does not fit neatly into our common, modern, polarizing categories. So why should we expect his followers to? If we're faithful to the Bible, there should be times where everybody's toes get stepped on, including our own. And then he goes on to actually uh, present some of his own views. He says, so am I reformed? Yes. Cessationist? No. Republican? No. Does that make me a Democrat? No. Am I conservative? In some ways. Am I liberal? Liberal about what? Marriage? No. Theology? No. Justice for the poor and oppressed? Yes, depending on what you mean. Do I hate and grieve abortion? Yes. Do I hate and grieve police brutality and racial injustice? Yes. Do I see a place for peaceful protest on both of these things? Yes. Do I support rioting and looting? No. Do I think proclaiming the gospel in word and deed is the church's mission? Yes. Do I think many reformed churches are severely lacking when it comes to discipling members on issues related to racism and injustice? Yes. I could literally go on for hours. And if we sat down for a socially distanced cup of tea, there are many things I'm sure we'd be surprised to learn about each other. But none of that would change the fact that Christ is our treasure and the gospel is our only hope. The benefit of the doubt is something we always want from others but have a hard time extending. That's because it's a gift that we are more prone to give to those we love. So if you love me, I'd really appreciate that gift and I'll try to give it back. Thanks. That's practical response number one. Avoid my sideism. Here's the second. Is when possible to have personal, nuanced conversations where we seek to listen more than we seek to be heard. To have personal, nuanced conversations with other people, particularly with those different than we are, where we are seeking to listen more than we are seeking to be heard. Uh, Kathy gave me this really fascinating article Uh, the other day about a man who, uh, a white man who in 1959 took medication that darkened the color of his skin and then traveled through the South for a month as a black man. Uh, What he learned was pretty astounding. What he desired to do was simply to get to know what it felt like to be someone else. Now, please hear me. 
I'm not advocating that you take any weird medicine, okay? Don't do that. It would be bad for you. What I am advocating, though, is just simply the old adage that you can't understand another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. So one of the things that we're called to is simply to get to know one another so that we might understand each other. And friends, this, there, are a lot, there, are, there are a lot of beneficial things. Well, there's a few beneficial things about social media, okay? This is not one of the beneficial things. Social media is not the place to have nuanced, personal conversation. Because the conversations that we need to have do not fit in a tweet. They do not fit on a sign. They do not fit all in a slogan. We need to have conversations face-to-face with one another, where we simply just sit and listen, where we can just ask the question, what is it like to be you? That would be a beneficial question to ask someone different than you. What's it like right now to be you? Help me understand that. And then spend some time simply listening. That's practical piece number two, nuanced conversations. Here's the third one and the final one, is to resist, yeah, but. Resist the temptation to say, yeah, but. I want to tell you three stories, okay, three stories together and just ask that you would listen for a minute. The first is a story of one of my close friends who's from Mississippi. He has his happy place in the world, which is a farm in Mississippi. I think it's 90 acres. He's shown me pictures. It's glorious, really beautiful. His grandfather bought this farm in 1946. His grandfather worked hard for the money to purchase the farm and then work the farm well for many, many years. His grandmother is still alive, and his uncle lives on the farm and works it. And my friend will inherit that farm at some point. And it will give him wonderful pleasure of just being able to have it, and it will actually give him some financial benefit as well. Now, all of these things are true. His grandfather worked hard for the money to buy the farm. He worked hard to pay it off. He will then leave that farm to the people he loves. What is also true is that in 1946, a black man could not get a loan in Mississippi. So his grandfather, my friend's grandfather, had an immediate advantage of being able to get a loan at a bank that someone else could not get simply because of the color of his skin. And so someone my friend's age from Mississippi who is black does not receive the same benefit that my friend does because he doesn't have that historical benefit given to him. Story number one. Story number two. Another good friend of mine, a pastor in a church that actually has a lot of law enforcement officers in it, particularly FBI officers. As they're discussing even these kind of issues of race, what they're telling him is, listen, here's what the numbers say and the data says, is that it's almost impossible to do real and beneficial policing without some sort of profiling going on. You can't actually keep people safe without profiling in some way. The, re- the, the, the data is just there that there are some places where there's more crime. And so it would be foolish for us, they say. It would be foolish for us to just ignore that there's more crime in those places and not do anything about it. That would actually not keep people safe. It would not decrease crime. It would increase crime. And so, of course, we profile because profiling keeps people 
safe. Story number three. Talking to Joy's sister this weekend, and she's telling me about a good friend of hers, one of her daughter's friends from school, and her mom, and their family is black. And she did exactly what I recommended here. This is, uh, she asked them, you know, what does it look like to be you right now? How are you dealing with this? And here's the story she told. She said, you know, I have a son. He's 12. She said, there are times that I kind of pull up to a convenience store and I think, I'm going to send my son in to go grab a Coke and a bag of chips and bring it out for us and I'm going to give him some money. She's like, but I have to think through that situation really, really clearly. I make him take off any kind of jacket or sweatshirt he might be wearing. I make him empty his pockets so that he doesn't reach into his pockets for some reason to get something out. She says, because I know the suspicion will be high because he's a young black male. And I fear for my son's life. And I have to coach him and prep him to be able to walk into a store. Now, I've told you stories that I'm sure have elicited some emotional responses. Here's my recommendation. Resist the temptation to say, yeah, but. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that I should feel guilty about inheriting something that my grandfather worked for, does it? Yeah, but the way that you profile actually is terrible for me and makes me feel, uh, makes me feel excluded. Yeah, but maybe if so many young black men weren't committing crimes, we wouldn't have this problem. See, I find it in my heart so oftentimes that that's where I want to go. I want to jump to, yeah, but let's just kind of talk about, let's balance out the other side. That's not what we need right now. What I found that my heart needs most is to actually be able to sit into those places, not to try to come up with easy answers, not to try and come up with policy answers that nobody's asking me to write anyway, not to try and make all of the dots connect, but simply to acknowledge that these things are true, to let it increase my compassion for people, and to let it increase in me the way that I cry out to God to change things. Let me just finish with this. Um, there's this church in Spain, in Barcelona, uh, cathedral. <laughs> church is probably not uh, enough of a word for it. It's called the Sagrada Familia Cathedral. It was started in 1882 by uh, the renowned architect Antoni Gaudí. And it is, uh, was not finished upon his death in 1926, and it's still not finished now. You've probably seen pictures of this incredible church. It looks like uh, an enormous sandcastle. It is, it is glorious and overwhelming in so many ways. And they have been literally working on it for almost 150 years. In fact, they're hoping that they'll be finished by 2030, maybe 2032. So this architect, of course, has been dead for a long time. He never saw the, uh, the job finished. And a lot of the people that ended up taking you know, the mantle up after him, the architects and the builders who are working on it now, they may not see it finished either. But I love actually what he said, because people have asked him about when he was alive. They asked him, you know, like, when are you going to be done with this thing? Can we just get on with it? And he said this. He said, my client is not in a hurry. I love that. He's right. His client, the Lord, is doing something wonderful. He is building his kingdom. 
It is glorious, and we get to look, and we get to see that glory. And we also get to look, and we get to see what's unfinished, the difficult, broken pieces. But he's at work. It is continuing. And it, there will be a time where you won't have to hear long-winded sermons on these kinds of things because we won't deal with them anymore. There will be no conflict. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. There will be no hatred. There will only be love and worship. That time is coming, friends. And Jesus is about that business now. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, these are really wonderful and difficult things that we get to proclaim to each other. To, to truly take a look at, um, at the brokenness in our world and in our hearts. To truly take a look at the glorious things that you're doing, that you have done on the cross, that you're continuing to do by the power of your spirit. Lord, you truly are building your kingdom. And so, Lord, the first thing that we would ask simply is that that kingdom would come and that it would come quickly. Come and remove us from this pain. But, Lord, if that is not your will, show us how to live in it well. How to be a church that inhabits and exhibits the beauty, the beauty and the glory of the kingdom of God to the world around us. Show us what it means to treat each other with fairness and equity and kindness and mercy and understanding. Lord, keep us from what we tend to and change us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.